Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. So we're on the third paragraph of the Shema, and we didn't quite finish a third paragraph. So I'm going to review it for just pshat, superficial, simple meaning. Okay, Um, we'll finish that up. Then just to look ahead, we're going to talk about, just to head off questions, we will talk about what's the point of this paragraph? Why does it make sense? Does it make sense? Um, We will talk about why is this paragraph selected to be part of the Shema and how does it fit into the flow? And um, we will talk about customs of tzitzit, looking and touching and kissing. Uh, So we will get to all those things. Okay. So from Bemidbar, Numbers. Hashem spoke to Moses saying, speak to Bnei Israel and tell them that they should or they must make a fringe on the corners of their garments for all generations. And they should place on the fringe a petil techelet, a blue thread. Jonathan, you asked last week what the word kanaf means, and I said it means corner, and I said that when it's a bird, it means a wing, and it means the corner of the garment, but to take a step back, because I thought about it afterwards, I, I think more narrowly than corner, it actually means the hem of the garment, okay, the hem, so one might even ask originally in context, does this paragraph imply that there are we assume it implies that people wore four-cornered garments and you'd put the fringe on the four corners. I'm not even sure that that is actually the simplest shot of the paragraph. It might really just mean put fringes on the hems of their garment. I don't know. We'd have to ask a Bible scholar that, uh, a secular critical Bible scholar. So either on the hem of their garment or the corners of their garments, put a fringe and put in the, on the fringe or in the fringe a blue thread. And this shall be for them at tzitzit. This shall be their fringe. And they will see them or look at them. And as a sort of subsequent thing, as a result, look at them and remember all of God's mitzvot. So we talked about this at some length. Seeing and then remembering. And do them. So see the tzitzit, remember the mitzvot, and fulfill them. Velotaturu, and not wander or stray after their minds and after their eyes, which they might whore after, go astray after. Okay? Um, And I think... this. Yes, someone mentioned this. Uh, last week, uh, but I want to sort of sharpen it. It echoes a theme in the second paragraph of the Shema, but with different words, right? Um, uh, uh, second paragraph of the Shema, one, two, one, two, three, fourth line, Hishamulachem, be careful, pen yifte levavchem, lest your heart be seduced. It's interesting um, that commonly, the most common um, use of uh, yifteh or lifatot in the Torah 
is seduction in the sexual sense. So it's interesting that you have a word that's used, uh, which is normally a sexual word connotation and for going astray. And we also have that in the third paragraph, Harold, because we have zonim, which means whoring. Okay. So the fact that there is, um, I think the fact there's a, that there's a usually sexual word used as a metaphor for going astray in these two paragraphs can't be random or accidental. Okay. They're both very unusual words to be used in a non-sexual meaning. So uh, it kind of raises the question of why might you go astray, but be- because you're going to have a, a hankering to do that. Whatever the thing is that's going to lead you astray, you're going to lust for that thing. Okay? It's going to pique your interest the way sex does. Because those are both sexual words, generally, in the Torah. Okay? And then we have taturu, and in the first, in the second paragraph, we had visartem. So lasur means to go astray, and latur is another word meaning to wander, wander off path, as it were, meander away. Okay? So the idea in these two verbs, both the set in the second paragraph of the Shema and the set in the third paragraph of the Shema, is... um, you're going to have a lust or a drive or a, we can make it a little milder, an inc- a hankering or an inclination, okay, which is not going to arise from rational thought, from the thinking part of your lev, but from the feeling part of your lev, okay? And that will cause you to wander. Everyone follow that train of thought? I just want to sort of follow the Torah's train of thought here, okay? You're going to have some sort of... You're going to see something that's going to cause you to say, I want that, and that's what's going to lead you astray. It's an interesting idea in terms of, you know, this is obviously warning about leaving God becoming idolaters. And it's interesting how the Torah sets up how that might happen, right? It's not about because you might think the other religion makes more sense and then you would go astray, but rather something lustful towards that other religion will be aroused in you and that will cause you to go astray. I'm just going to let that sort of hang there. You can think about it when we talk about the paragraph as a whole. Okay. Um, so we had that word in the last sentence. When you see the tzitzit, you will remember. So this is just a re- recapitulation. So that you will remember and fulfill all the commandments. And again, I think this v doesn't just mean you'll remember all the commandments and be holy to your God. It's not just a this and that. But I think the vav here is so that you will uh, remember all the commandments to fulfill them. And thus, as a result, be holy to your God. Okay. I don't think it's just you'll do A and also B, but rather you will do A, which will lead to B. So, well, or you're going to do A, which will lead to B, which will lead to C. 
you'll remember there'll be awareness. So there will be fulfillment of the mitzvot. And then you will be holy. All of a sudden, we have holy. First time in this paragraph. Okay, I think it's actually the first time in the whole Shema. So how come that pops up in there all of a sudden? I just want to raise that as a question. Why does this lead to holiness? What about this leads to holiness? So we have tzitzit, fringes, has a blue thread on your garments for all generations. You'll look at it. You will remember all the mitzvot. You will fulfill them, thus staying on track and not being seduced by what your eyes see to, um, to go whore after. And so when you remember these mitzvot, when you remember and fulfill the mitzvot, then you will be holy. Okay, holy to your God. What does that mean, holy to your God? Well, I'm just going to let that question hang there. Okay. Ani Hashem Eloichem. I am Hashem, your God. So this is, uh, so up until now, we've had like commandments, right? What you, B'nai Israel, Moses, tell the Israelites to do this. And now we have a very different kind of sentence. This is like the sign-off sentence. Who's the one who's giving, uh, I'm making an interpretation here of why it's here. Um, you may have a different interpretation. Who's the one who's giving this command? What's the authority? That's what we say. By whose authority? This is like having a command. And then at the bottom, it says, you know, by authority of the state of whatever, or by authority of the king. Okay. I am Hashem, your God, who Asher Hotseti in, in English, it would, we'd have to do it in third person, right? And I am Hashem, your God, who took you, right? But it's um, first person. I am Hashem, your God, which I took you out of the land of Egypt. For what purpose? Was it to make you free? Was it to go to the state of Israel? Was it to go build the temple? Just, no, none of those things. Just liot lachem lelohim, to be your deity. I am Hashem, your deity, which I took you out of the land of Egypt to be your deity. So we have mention of Yitziat Mitzrayim here, right? The exodus from Egypt. And according to this sentence, the purpose of the exodus from Egypt is for God to be our God, right? It's not, by the way, notice there's no, very often when we have mention of exodus from Egypt, we also have freedom from the house of bondage. So there's no freedom from bondage. There's no going to Israel. It's just to be your God. Um, and, and the verse, just so you know what the verse in Bamidbar in, in Numbers is, the verse says, It restates it. And emet is not part of the verse. It's part of the next paragraph. We'll talk about that, not this week, but in some subsequent week about how emet gets connected. Okay, so that last verse is, the sign-off is, I just want to read the verse again. Ani Hashem Eloichem. That's quite a sentence, right? I don't know that I can think of another sentence in the Torah that sort of like starts and ends with that same declaration. Maybe there are others, right? 
I am Hashem, your deity, who took, who, which I took you out of the land of Egypt so that I would be your deity. I am Hashem, your God. So somehow the doing of the tzitzit thing and remembering and staying on track and on path and not getting seduced and all that stuff is connected to, um, I am God who took you out of Egypt to be your God. Uh, superficially, it's clear what that means in context. I took you to be your God, not for you to go astray and worship other gods. Okay? Um, but it's an interesting uh, sign-off on that paragraph. Okay. So I don't want to talk now yet about this paragraph in the context of the Shema in the sense of how, do the, how does the sequence of the three paragraphs flow? We'll get to that maybe this week, I think probably not this week, probably next week, but let's just look at the flow of ideas within this paragraph. Um, Actually, before we talk about that, I just want to talk about some interpretations about the blue thread. Like, why should a blue thread remind you about God? So the rabbinic sources are just as puzzled as we would be about that question. Why wouldn't... uh, red thread or a green thread remind me about God. That seems arbitrary. So anyone know the traditional interpretation of the sages? Why is it blue? What Chazal say? Blue is the color of the, what is the most obvious thing that green. we were as four-year-olds? Blue is the horizon, right? So, um, so uh, the rabbinic sources say, because blue is the color of the sky and the sky is, so you'll, when you look at the, at the trailet, you will think of, Sky and thinking of sky will remind you of God and creation. God, right. Why? Oh, Alan already wants to be theological by being creation, but that's not what the rabbinic sources say. It just says heaven, right? He- where is heaven, right? For you know, our ancestors 2,000 years ago, it's up there above the sky. Where is God? God is in the Shamayim, it's up above. Right, you know, there's a rakia and there's water, and then up there is God somewhere. Okay, so in a flat Earth understanding of where God is, God is physically up in or above the sky. Okay, so the rabbinic interpretation is: uh, you'll look at the blue. Blue makes you think of the sky of the rakia. The rakia makes you think of God, and that will remind you of God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Larry. So Joseph Hertz's Sidur yeah. quotes Rabbi Meyer, um, Mayer. the blue cord of the tzitzit resembles the sea, the sea reflects the heavens, and the heavens resemble the throne of glory. Thank you. More poetic than what I said. Got it. The sea, the sky, Hashem. Okay. Um, now, that might or might not do it for you in a world where we do not assume that God lives above. So there are various Bible scholars. Hold on, Jeff, I'll get to you. There are various modern Bible scholars who say, like, what is the tzitzit? Let's get into that right now. Like, why tzitzit? What is this whole tzitzit thing about? So, um, and these modern Bible scholars say that in the ancient world, contemporaneous with the Bible, um, fringes were sometimes worn on garments by 
high and mighty rich people. It was a sign of wealth or nobility, okay? Who else had things hanging from the hem of his garment in the Torah? The high priest. The high priest, the Kohen Gadol, not the other Kohanim, right? So the Kohen Gadol's uh, um, hem was something only for the Kohen Gadol, not one of the garments of the other priests. And it had on it, does anyone remember what it had on it? Bells, I think. Bells and? Pomegranates. Pomegranates. So is that like pomegranates with bells in it or alternating bells and pomegranates? It's hard for us to envision because it's always hard to. <laughs> I remember when I used to read, I don't know if it exists anymore, the fashion page in the New York Times, when we would talk about there would be a gala, like a rich charity event, and it would describe what people were wearing and what their outfits looked like. And I could never understand any of it because it was using words to describe something visual, right? I, I, I never understood, you know, she wore an organza dress with a ruffled something. There were words that I just did not understand and could not envision, probably because I didn't know anything about fashion and I still don't. So anyway, so we don't exactly know, was it bell, pom- bell inside each pomegranate or bell and pomegranate alternating? There are all kinds of theories about this. So the Kohen Gadol had a garment with things hanging off it. We know that there are various um, uh, physical remains, not of garments, but but paintings and etchings and things like that from the ancient world that shows nobility wearing um, fringed garments or hem garments. Regular old you and me day-to-day peasant farmers did not wear garments like that, okay? So Bible scholars suggest that every individual Israelite is supposed to have a fringe on their garment, suggests that Everyone, all Israelites are supposed to wear some marker of, let's call it, I was going to say nobility, but let's call it high status, okay? And whereas only rich, fancy Romans could afford the dyed purple garment or only hangings and clothing of the Beit HaMikdash was of Tchelet, because Tchelet was rare because of that, again, the rarity of the worm dye, right, that we talked about last week. Um, We want every Israelite, again, this would be a contemporary Bible scholar interpretation, which I'm not sure traditional Jews would disagree with. Um, We, uh, it's one of those examples where um, the, I'm going to say, liberal leaning Orthodox uh, Bible teachers who accept some of the findings of modern Bible scholarship, uh, not human authorship, but they say understanding archaeology can help under, help us under, enhance our appreciation for the Torah. Um, I think this is even one that they would uh, one that they would be able to accept. Right. So the individual Israelite having just a thread of that tchelet that precious substance that was worn by Kohanim, okay, that marker of high status, just having one thread of tchelet and a tassel or a few tassels, okay, is what you should wear. The suggestion being that the individual Israelite should wear some marker of high status and loftiness 
for what purpose? Not to be, not to show that I, I, I don't have nothing, I have something, but to remind the Israelite of God and the mitzvot. Why would that remind the Israelite of God and the mitzvot? Well, it could be because of what Robbie Mayer said, because blue is like the sea, the sea is like the sky, the sky is where God lives. Um, it could be because it then makes every Israelite a little bit like a Kohen. And- so the Kohen wears a fancy garment with lots of embroidery and lots of things hanging off. The individual simple Israelite, who probably wears a much simpler garment, right, has a little bit of fringe and one thread of blue. But that means I'm a little bit like the Kohen. The Kohen. And where, where else in the Torah do we find the idea that the individual Israelite should be like a Kohen? Hint, it is in my Bar Mitzvah Parsha, which I read in February 1971. Marshall, <laughs> what did I read in my Bar Mitzvah? Oh. <laughs> right, in Parsha Yitro, it says, God says, you are going to be to me a Mamlechet Kohanim, Kohanim Begoy Kadosh. You are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Right? We don't have the word Kohen at all in this paragraph. We do have Kadosh, Kedoshim, okay? And maybe there is the unspoken link to Kihuna, to priesthood here, because it means you're going to have a little bit of a priestly thing in your everyday garment. Everyone with me? So you, yes. all ordinary Israelites, you need to wear a little bit of priestly garb in your everyday garment. Again, by the way, what are priests? If we just stop and think of what are koanim? Koanim are people who are dedicated to the service of God. And classically in most religious traditions, they are in some level, I'm putting it in air quotes, closer to God. They're fully dedicated to God, whether this is in Catholicism um, or in early Judaism in, in, the, in the Bible, right? Samuel's mother takes little Shmuel to the temple and she dedicates him to the temple. She gives up her little son saying, here, I'm dedicating him to the temple, right? So being a Kohen was somehow not something that anyone could do, right? We in later Judaism, have, you know, from rabbinic Judaism on, the rabbis democratized Judaism and said anyone can study Torah and have access to God. That's not what the Torah says, okay? The Torah says everyone has to fulfill mitzvot, but there are particular people who are called kohanim. They do God business full time, all right? So maybe in this paragraph, it's saying individual Israelites, everyone has to have a little bit of reminder that you are also on God business, Okay, and this will keep you on track so that you will be holy to God, which is why I took you out of Egypt, not because you were working too hard or because I wanted you to build the temple, but just so that you would be holy to me. Okay, pause their comments, their hands. Meyer, then Verit. No, No, wait, I held off Jeff. Jeff first. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, a question about Techelet. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it last week, and I yeah. think you described it as a mollusk, right? Yes. 
worm. Uh, yeah, like a sea snail. So my question is, does it matter? It seems a little odd to me that it would be something I would presume is not kosher. We don't eat our taluses. But it doesn't matter that it's something that's unkosher and used as... One would have to delve into that question. Hmm? Right. Hmm. Good question, and one would have to delve into it. Of course, I could be a total, I believe the technical term is apikores, and say... Well, uh, Apicorus means uh, heretic. Deny. And say, what makes us think that people in the Torah's time understood the laws of Kashrut the same way we do, even though there are some rules about what animals you can eat and what animals you can't eat? Because I said that um, anyone who is traditional-minded or orthodox who's listening to our podcast will never listen to me again. Sorry, I apologize. Right. But in the halakha, <laughs> there is talk about how we can make use of non-kosher substances for non-eating purposes. Then, except for or, except or even or even eating purposes in some case. My I always wondered about this, but you can't eat a bee as an insect, I don't believe. Correct. But you can eat the honey. Correct. Got it. Okay. By the way, what's the one uh animal halakhically that you can't you can neither eat nor derive any benefit from it other than uh, to save a life. Pig, pig, because pig became a dividing line in late antiquity between Jews and Gentiles because Gentiles ate pigs, you know, the Hanukkah story, et cetera, et cetera. There was extra meaning that got loaded onto the idea of pigs um, such that, you're not supposed to eat it or derive any benefit from it. I always wonder about football. <laughs> I always wondered about that. I always wanted to say to the rabbi, rabbi, so what about throwing around the pigskin? Are we allowed to do that or not? Right. Okay. They're not made of pigskin anymore. Okay. It's just a metaphor. Thank you. It's probably, it's an artificial substance probably. Okay. Then Meyer, then Vered. I was just going to suggest that the, 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 the idea of having um, a fringe with tchelet, you're suggesting that perhaps it's class. I'm su- I would suggest maybe it's a function of priority. Like instead of you know putting your money into a big screen TV, you have to buy this little thread of tchelet. I like that. Uh, even, if, class- even though all you can afford is one single little dyed thread. Go ahead. Uh, I, I wanted to say that. And then just while I have the second, I also wanted to read a little bit of the Rambam. Well, hold on a you second, know. Meyer. Wait a second, Meyer. Yes. I just want to restate what, you're, what you're saying, right? So you're saying you, you have some extra resources. It shouldn't be devoted. What, what you should do with the, the priority for what to do with that extra resources is to have something that reminds you every day of your obligation to fulfill mitzvot so that you will be holy. That's the thing that should be in your consciousness every day, rather than I drive a better car this year. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to sort of re- restate what you're saying. Go on. The Rambam, as long as you're going to keep it short, please. Rambam. Um, so he was just talking about giving the commandment of tzitzit. Um, the purpose of it is that, the, that Israel should thereby remember all the commandments and not forget the Shabbat or any of their commandments, referring to what that would just happen relating to the man who was caught in the public, you know, collecting the wood, 
the reason I'm suggesting that's relevant is because the tzitzit is a public thing. You see it on the outside. So, and the, the going back to your Am Kadosh and the idea of Kadoshim, right? In a nation. So that the idea being it's an assembly, it's a group of people who are Kadosh, meaning sanctified or, or distinct. Um, so that you're, you're, you're publicizing your distinction and you're all aware of it, you know, together. Great. Great. I'm publicizing my distinction and I see it on you also. Right. It's a, it's like people walking around with an I voted sticker, right? It's a, it's a public identifier that we're all part of something. Good. Thank you. Vered. Just wanted to, (coughs) from a practical point of view, how, how simple was it for an average person to find a ptil tchelet or do or use a ptil tchelet? I have no idea, okay? And your question raises something, well, it raises several things, but one thing that modern Bible scholars talk about is the difference between what they call biblical religion and Israelite religion. Biblical religion means what the Torah says we do. The Torah is a book, okay? And Israelite religion means what people actually practiced. So we know, for example, they have dug up from Israelite territory in Bible times, lots of small female figurines with exaggerated sexual characteristics. Apparently, they were very big in Israelite religion. They're clearly forbidden in biblical religion. Everyone get the distinction? Biblical religion is like the official book about what you're supposed to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's what everyone did. So we don't know the answer to that, Verd. We know very little because um, uh, Israelite life in the Torah times was by our standards very... um, materially primitive we have next to no physical remains from it let's just say as opposed to oh we have egyptian tomb paintings from 2000 bce where they can reconstruct where it's in color right so we have things that are three and four thousand years old in egypt with drawings of pictures and what how they of people and how they dressed and the, what the slaves look like and what the regular people look like and what the priests look like and we have nothing like that from Eretz Yisrael, we have no remains like that from 2,500 or 3,000 years ago. So we don't really know. And most of the materials they used were organic, right, from animals which mean, or, or plants, which means it was perishable, right? So we don't have that, right? That we, they look at like, you know, archaeologists look at animal bones to see what they ate, right? <clears throat> and, and seeds that came out in their poop so they know what plants they ate. Yeah, but other than beyond that, so are the material remains that we have are really, really limited. We don't know. And it would be interesting to know, but we have no idea. Michael? There's nothing in the uh, tile floors in, in synagogues that might show? All of that stuff is from post-Torah. The earliest tile floors are give or take post-Jesus. So the first few centuries of the common era, not in Torah times. Okay. Right. Not in what we would call the first millennium BCE, meaning 1000 to zero mm-hmm. next to nothing. Bernie. Yeah, I just want to quickly say maybe we talked about I think that this same Tachelet, this this mollusk 
die, if I'm if I'm not wrong, were used in Roman togas, which was yes, reserved we talked, for the emperors. Yes, we talked about that last yeah. week. Yes. Yeah. Um, by the way, I want to tell you another rabbinic interpretation about how tzitzit reminds you. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have put my talus away. And this will be the last thing we'll close on this line. We will close with gematria, because, you know, no day is complete without gematria. So gematria, so in ancient uh, Israelite writing, there were no numerals. They used letters for numerals, right? So Aleph meant one and Bet meant two, up to Yud, which meant 10. And then uh, Aleph was 11. So Yud was 10, Kaf was 20. There's a whole system of writing numerals, okay? And all, um, the rabbis uh, looked at this and because basically because Jews believed that Hebrew was the code of the universe, they believed that certain words could be transmuted into other words by counting up the letters, okay? This was very big in the Middle Ages, but also in the rabbinic era, in the Midrash. So the word tzitzit, sadi is 90, by the way, notice, how is tzitzit spelled here? Spell it for me. Sadiq. There's no second yud. It's called a ktiv chaser. But we mm-hmm. pronounce it as if there's a second yud, correct? Tzitzit. So if there were a second yud... Sadi is 90 and Yud is 10. 90 and 10 is 100. Sadi is 90 and Yud is 10. That's another 100. 100 and 100 makes 200. Taf is 400. 200 plus 400 is? 600. 600. Okay. I'm getting close. Missing 13. On each corner, corner, I have how many strings? Four. Four Four except it's doubled over. So it looks like... Eight. So I got 608. And then the Ashkenazi, well, actually, there's different ways of tying tzitzit, Ashkenazi, Sephardi. There are many customs, but it's generally with um, four sets of little turns. And in between each set of four, there's a double knot. So because there's four sets and there's a start and a finish and a double knot in between, that means there's how many double knots? Five. 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 Okay. So Seat seat is the word seat seat is 600 plus eight strings on each corner plus five knots on each corner, which equals 613. 613. 613. So that is the rabbinic gematria way of saying how to, other than blue is the ocean, ocean reflects the sky, right? How does seat seat remind us of the misot? Because seat seat, with the way it's done, adds up to 613. And, uh, we're going to close on that for today and we will continue some more next week. And we'll talk about ideas and the flow of ideas and how this fits into the three paragraphs of the Shema as a whole. That's where we're going next. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.